everybody. Welcome to Ruth is Stranger Than Fiction. back at last. Here we are again. A lot of things got in the way. Work, Christmas, illness. Anyway, we're back. We're back. And probably it's Happy New Year to everybody. 2023. What's the motto? 2022. Let's just try to get through. That was last year. We've done it nearly. We've nearly done it. 2023. The best year for me? I can only think of we as a rhyme, I'm afraid. 2023. Let's all have a we. No, not great. But anyway, here we are. Here's Chris. Hi. Hi. Hello. And we're back. So today we're going to have a story about a spirit, a small spirit. But I thought, why don't we start by Chris telling us about the drink he's made? And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the first time in the history of the podcast, nearly two years now, that you have made a drink for us. Well, if you mean made as opposed to simply provided simply brought a beer with a slightly spooky name yes yes i do so can you tell us about the drink (laughs) yes i can i mean i don't know if you should have your hopes too high or not should we what should you do try a little bit my hopes are sky high for this drink okay absolutely sky high try try a little and then let's see oh it's oh it's got quite the the zesty flavor there's a zing there isn't there (laughs) Mm, it's quite nice it's okay shall i guess what's in it okay guess I mean, you know what the contents of our cupboards are, which makes it a bit I easier. I know, but that... And you also know that I haven't been out for no, but four that, days. that so. booze cupboard is full of 100 million things that... We've got so many half-used bottles of strange drinks that people have brought around over the years. Weird... Largely as a consequence of this podcast. Well, absolutely. Blue spirits, loads of different brown spirits, <laughs> some white spirits, all different flavours, all sorts. So I'm going to say... That this has got lime in it. That's the, the zesty... Well, you can also see there's a piece of lime floating in this, I imagine. <laughs> juice too, though. Yes, juice too, yes. Uh, ginger beer? Yes. Homemade? Yes. From Chris's ginger beer plant? Yes. Is it rum? No. Not rum. I don't know, then. It's bourbon. Is it bourbon? It's bourbon. It's okay. Jim Bean. Hmm. What do you call this drink? Well, it's a good question. The only thing I knew in advance about what we were doing today was that you had mentioned ghostly children. Yes. And I was thinking on ghostly children a little bit. Good, because I'm going to ask you about them soon. Oh, okay. Well, then you may be disappointed with the direction I took, because <laughs> really the only thing that I could bring to mind was The Sixth Sense. I'm not yes. sure, is that a spoiler? No, it's not a spoiler to say there's ghostly Come children. Come on, it's it. been out for 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but people are very touchy about The Sixth Sense, aren't they? And what is or isn't a spoiler. Okay, fair enough. So then I was thinking about Bruce Willis, and being as it's Christmas time, obviously perennial Christmas favourite, Die, Die Hard. Die Hard, yes. So I did a bit it is of a Christmas film, we Googling, all agree. Googling around cocktails around Bruce Willis, Die Hard. <laughs> Did you Google cocktails that Bruce Willis likes? To begin, well, no, I didn't Google cocktails that Bruce Willis likes. I found, I found a cocktail called the Hans Gruber. Nice. Uh, which, What's in that? Uh, it's basically a uh, a martini but with Goldschlager in it. Okay. Because uh, he likes gold? I, I think so, yeah. Mm. Didn't have any of that anyway. No. Couldn't make that. I don't remember um, it being very nice. I found the old that days. apparently uh, Bruce Willis owns his own brand of vodka. Nice. And he has in the past suggested recipes to use with his own brand of vodka. 
but it contained apple juice, of which I know you're Disgusting. not a fan. Yeah, okay, so I steered clear from that. And then anyway, I ended up reading an article about how Bruce Willis had apparently once upset some people in a restaurant because <laughs> he demanded to drink his favourite cocktail, which is bourbon and root beer. Okay. And they didn't have any root beer, and they had to go and get some root beer from a nearby deli just to satisfy Bruce Willis. I don't know, have you ever had root beer? Um... No, and I don't really think I know what it is. No, I'm not sure what, what it is What root either. is it made from? Well, it tastes like germaline. You know germaline? What, that you rub on your body? Yes. <laughs> you know how germaline smells? Like, sort of like a Vicks Vapo rub. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's how root beer tastes. Oh, gross. I once, when I was a child in McDonald's, was given a root beer <laughs> instead of a Coke and thought something terribly bad had happened. But no one in this country drinks root beer. No, anyway. My next problem, no root beer. Anyway, I thought, well, we have got ginger beer. So then I googled... And ginger is Christmassy. Exactly. I googled for bourbon and ginger beer. This is, as I say, a very long and circuitous route <laughs> to this cocktail. But anyway, this is called the Beacon Mule, and it's basically okay. like an American version of a Moscow Mule, but instead of vodka, it has bourbon. Great. Well, it's quite tasty. Yeah. I can see that this would actually be a nice drink for the summer. Okay. Next time. Next summer. Well, going back to child ghosts then. So indeed today, the story involves a child ghost. And in fact, it's the story of what some have claimed is the UK's first recorded poltergeist. <laughs> the oldest historical record of a poltergeist right. that we have in this country. Because when you told me child ghost, my thinking was, you know, like a small, sickly Victorian waif. Oh, I've died of tuberculosis. <laughs> exactly, that oh, kind of my thing. lungs. <laughs> I feel a bit like I've got bad lungs yeah. these days. Okay, so here's a question. Child ghosts, cute or scary? I don't think cute, are they? Well, that's I mean, what I'm on, asking on the, you. The, We've all the, seen Casper. I, well, I was just going to say, so on the gamut of cute ghosts, Casper is pretty much the only one, right? Okay. I don't know. Name me another. Another cute ghost. Yeah. I wonder if we'll find the ghost today a bit cute. So you're going for the scary I'm end of things. I'm going for scary, yeah. And we all it... know the haunted singing voices of children appear in horror films. La, 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 la. <laughs> Try, la, try a minor la, key. La, la. Mm, I'm not sure I can sing in a minor key. I'm too jolly. <laughs> I'm too full of Christmas cheer. So, scariest child ghost, I think maybe the orphanage. Oh, that's exactly what I was thinking. The yeah. little sackhead boy. Yeah. He's very scary, isn't he? He's a very scary child ghost. Or is he a ghost? We don't know. The Innocents, isn't that scary children ghosts? I believe so, yeah. yeah. The Others? Yeah. Oh, that's kind of a spoiler. But... Well, come on. Today there's spoilers. So well, I only think, for films. Uh, is a child ghost s- more scary than an adult ghost? Hmm. Is it, it's sadder, it's isn't it? It's perhaps more haunting. It's a bit sadder, I think. You could reason with an adult ghost. I'm not sure you could. You could reason with I'd one. Like, I'd like to imagine you could. Oh, the stories are full of reasonable ghosts. <laughs> People just having a logical argument with a ghost. All right. <laughs> So this is the story today of Little Malakin. <laughs> Little Malakin. It sounds like a Beatrix Potter. Was he the first poltergeist in UK history? Let's find out more. For this story, we go to Dagworth Hall Where's in that? Suffolk. Right, OK. Near Stowmarket. OK. Dagworth is a small hamlet, but it dates as far back as the Doomsday Book and further, but it's recorded in the Doomsday Book. There are records of the inhabitants of the hall going back to 1066. And there's stories of the Didagworth Knights. Didagworth? <laughs> Is that German for the Dagworth? <laughs> or of Dagworth, I believe. He settled in the area in the uh, 1190s and soon took the name of the place. Right. So they weren't called the Dagworths originally, but they took the name on. That's what rich people do when they live somewhere. Just take the name. Just was the name on their name. Make themselves seem like I they've always be... belonged. Uh, Ruth McPhee 
of Trumpington. <laughs> De Trumpington. <laughs> and there is a Dagworth Hall there to this day. The current building dates from the 15th century, but there was a manor house there before that. Occupied or ruined? Occupied. Oh, great. Still occupied. So the manor house that stood there back in the day was home to the De Dagworth Knights and of most relevance to our story, home to the family of Osbert Fitzhervey de Dagworth. And actually, Osbert becomes Sir Osborne in some retellings of the tale. Right. That's a further kind of anglicisation of the I guess name. so. For example, um, H. Mills West talks about this story in Ghosts of East Anglia, and he says Sir Osborne. Right. Osbert Fitzhervey was the King's Justice. Okay. He was granted Dagworth by Geoffrey, Count de Perch, in 1190. <laughs> Where is Perch? I don't know. Maybe he just really liked fish. <laughs> Lord of the River. His um his attire was emblazoned with tiny silver fish. He was just a fish man. And he lived there, Sir Osbert lived there with his family for the next 20 years or so. And it's during this time that the spirit of Little Malakin supposedly made his mischief in the manor house. So we've got some recordings from not quite the time, but very close to the time. Do you remember our old friend Ralph de Coggeshall? Yeah, vaguely, although at this point I can't remember quite which story to which you related. Ralph de Cogshall was the one who recorded some news of the Buer's Dragon. Ah, okay, yes. So we're looking, I mean, he was at Suffolk, so, oh sorry, Essex he was based, but near near the Suffolk border. border. Ralph was a monk and worked as the Abbey's chronicler at um, the Cistercian Abbey in Essex of Cogshall. And he recorded all sorts of history from the area in the Chronicon Anglicanum, the Chronicum and Lacanum. I can work that out. And that's in the British Library now. Yeah. Is that a big illuminated manuscript? I imagine not much illumination, mostly just scribbling. Dry text. I would think. No pictures. Ralph tells stories of a certain fantastical spirit who used to talk to the family of Sir Osbert, calling himself Malakin, and always speaking in the voice of a one-year-old child. A one-year-old child doesn't have a voice. I thought that too. It does. It, it screams. Yeah, I think they gurgling. just mean a very small child. Right. Because I don't think a one-year-old, but then what do we know of child development? Well, but I'm reasonably sure it won no one speaking. Ralph was writing in around 1187 and uh, between 1187 and 1224. So it wasn't happening at the time, but he was in Mm. living memory. So he, you know, he's recording things that people were talking about around the time. According to H. Mills West, there were five Osbert children and they were allowed by their mother to roam quite free and easy about the house. Well, if you've got a massive house, then fair enough. (laughs) Well, I know, but they could be getting up to all sorts of scrapes. They were quite a noisy and boisterous bunch. It was amidst this rather chaotic scene of children playing, racing, shouting, running around, that the presence of little Malakin was first felt. The children began to feel that even the boisterous five of them couldn't be causing quite all this kerfuffle, (laughs) and so it was that they became aware of their mysterious visitor. I see. So this is a convenience upon which to blame all of your mistakes. You see this as a as a scapegoat, Malakin. Yeah. A shrill voice, much like that of a very young child, would cry, Play again! Play again! When games came to an end. At first the children would flee in fright whenever the little voice was heard. But soon they grew used to the extra participant in their youthful games and began to accept Malakin as one of their own. Right. Play again, he would shout. Play again. So at this stage, no physical form, just a voice. Just a little voice right. piping up. The voice of a small piping child. So he was um, happy as a, a viewer. Didn't need to be an active participant in the game. Well, let's hear more. Sometimes if the children didn't play, he could be heard in the house playing alone. 
They would catch a rocking horse in motion in an empty room. Balls would roll through, although untouched by human hands. And objects would go missing, only to be found hidden in improbable places later on. So he was up to sort of scampish games of his own. Hmm. You're so sceptical. Well... Yeah, sorry, I'm looking at this with very much of a 21st century. Um, here's some more details from the writing of Ralph de Coggeshall. Sorry, he's just of. Ralph de Coggeshall, I'm, I'm making him, him into him a... Here's what he wrote about it at the time. The things which he did and said were both wonderful and very funny, and he often told people's secrets. At first, the family of the knight were extremely terrified, but by degrees they became used to his words and silly actions and conversed familiarly with him. He sometimes spoke English in the dialect of the region, right. Suffolk, yep. and sometimes in Latin. <laughs> and he discussed the scriptures with the chaplain of that same night, just as he truly testified to us. So I mean, Ralph is saying that a chaplain even went in and yeah. spoke to little Malakin. Surely if you're the chaplain, the first conclusion you're coming to in such a situation is this is the devil's work. You would think so. Demonic. Yeah. Don't discuss the scriptures with it. <laughs> Here's some other japes and tales of Malakin that he would say to the family. He claimed to have been born at Lavenham, which is about 15 miles away, into a poor family of farm labourers. He had been left in a field by his mother while she was out harvesting. She laid him on a little bed of straw so that she could get on with her work. Sleepy Malakin snoozed off, only to wake and find himself surrounded by strange people. Mm. They picked him up and snatched him away. Or at least they didn't harvest him. That's what I was worried was coming. <laughs> he said that he'd lived with those that took him for seven years already and must live with them for seven years more. Okay, so he's not necessarily a dead child. He's doing some kind of, you know, it's, it's, temporal uh, manifestation. I don't, I don't know. He said that he now lived in a neighbouring house and those that he lived with often chided him for leaving to go and speak with other people, such right. as the Osberts. Stop bothering people, that sort of thing. Okay. Stop, Malakin, bothering this nice Osbert family. Okay, so we're saying this other house may exist in the spirit realm. Exactly, who knows. He and the others he lived with had a special hat that made them invisible. <laughs> Silly Malakin. I mean, this is something a child's made up. <laughs> That does sound, yes, like something a child would wake up. But the adults would speak to him too. Okay. He would often request food and drink and said that these were to be placed on a special chest in the house. When the Osbert family put the requested items on the chest, they disappeared. And which child's favourite foods did they happen to be? But it's interesting what you say. Because you're saying maybe he's not a dead child. Well, I don't know. Just he's trying to a... read into what you're saying there. And the story about him being stolen means that there's some references that refer to it as the story of a changeling. Right, a fairy child. Mm. Tell us about changelings. Well, the changeling is a child that has been swapped out by the fairies, isn't it? So mm. a human-born child is taken by the fairies, mm -hmm. and in its place, a fairy child is planted to be raised cuckoo style i guess by human parents mm, and causing mischief no to doubt reveal its true colors at some point later in life and sometimes a changeling child is a bit evil isn't it i think so yeah i think well i mean fairies in the the classic tradition are yeah. evil aren't they we have this idea of uh I don't, are you they... know, flower sprites and all that shit. i suppose they're not evil so much as the notions of good or evil are human notions well, that's and true. you might argue to other creatures what is the notion of good or evil right they're amoral. They're more like uh, dispassionate observers, aren't they? They see our life, they think nothing of it, because it, 
you know, only interacts very peripherally with their own life. They and to see us, it. that makes them evil right. beings. But to them, as you say. I thought it, yeah, I thought it's interesting, though, because I think usually with if you have a story of a changeling, you kind of hear it from the perspective of the, the parents, don't you? Yes. Like, our child has gone and now we have this yeah. strange, something's this, not quite this right about it. This child that has grown up in our presence could not possibly be our own spawn. <laughs> Something must have happened. But this is almost like the story of the changeling from the human child that got snatched away, yeah. isn't it? So yeah. he's saying he fell asleep and woke up and was snatched and now he has to live in this sort of strange place that we're not really sure what it is. But they do have a hat that makes you invisible. Right. So that's one sort of interpretation that's that's happened is that he's a changeling. That's fun. That's been he or he's the human child that's been taken away and taken into this kind of strange fairy realm. I don't know what they do with the human children they take. No. Because do they rear them as elves? Doesn't make sense. Elves really, now, it? is it? Well, elves, fairies, same business, isn't it, really? Yeah, so I don't know. So he's just having a fun time with haunting these human children, if you like. However, Alan Murdy, from our old friends, the Society for Psychical Research, mm. has written a bit about the case of the Dagworth spirit. And he says that it's got more in common with poltergeist stories right. than changeling folklore. What do we know about poltergeists? What are the usual the tropes? Oh, they'll smash stuff about. Yep. Usually malevolent, aren't they? Upset about something. Mm-hmm. Actually, quite often affecting children. Exactly. Often, you know, at the point of puberty, if the Enfield poltergeist and ghost watch should be uh, believed. <laughs> yes. So Alan Murdy says there's quite a few things that make him think this is more of a poltergeist than a changeling story. The focus on the adolescent members of the family is often the case with, mm. with the classic poltergeist tales like you said the Enfield haunting it was too prepubescent, pre-pubescent girls, or kind of Just... on the verge the disappearance and reappearance of objects yeah okay yeah. Murdy says that's classic poltergeist yeah he also says that the silly actions that Ralph of Coggeshall describes to him he's like that's classic poltergeist Silly actions, because they're just up to nonsense, aren't they? I feel like he's taking an early 20th century idea and applying it back through history. But what what do you think a, a medieval monk writing about silly actions would mean? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think the, the sort of playful nature, rolling balls I, about, rocking, I would, the I would not horse. take a poltergeist to be playful. I would say a poltergeist is a it can serious start playful. Bastard. Right, okay, it lures you in. Think of the film Poltergeist. It's not, uh, I suppose, yeah. At okay. the beginning, it's just moving chairs about, and they're like, this is fun. Yeah. Chairs are just Watch moving this around. this stuff roll down my kitchen. Exactly. But that isn't playfulness, though, is it? The, the Poltergeist isn't playing with them there. That's just how they've kind of noticed the manifestation mm. of certain things, whereas... But was maybe Malakin wasn't playful, ultimately. Oh, uh, well... No. You'll have to tell me. We'll find out. And another element that he talks about is that, almost without exception... This ghost was heard but never seen. So if you think of a lot of kind of classic ghost stories, you know, all the women in grey type things, the strange spirits that haunt old houses, usually with them it's a a visual manifestation. Yeah. People see something, don't they, but they don't necessarily hear anything. That's true. Yeah, you don't ever see a poltergeist, do you, I don't think? Rarely. So Murdy says, with respect to the voice, could this have been an example of the rare Enfield variety of speaking poltergeist? Oh, okay. So he says maybe. Although it seems Malakin was quite a talkative young fellow and there was no shortage of audible manifestations, he was only seen once, according to the uh, the folklore. He appeared in the room of a certain maiden. A peeper. In, no, not a <laughs> Malakin was a tiny peeper. <laughs> I asked the question. In the account of H. Mills West, the the maiden was one of the daughters of the family called Amelia. Amelia and Malakin had a special bond, it seemed. She was his favourite. 
it was her to who he would most often come to play. He seemed to prefer her company to the company of any of the others. Amelia was desperate to see him. She'd heard him and played with him. Play again, play again. And heard all the stories, the magic hat of invisibility, the strange family of snatchers. But she'd never seen him, so she begged and begged, but the spirit was reluctant. Eventually, one day, he gave in and said that he would appear before her. She had to go to a specific room at a specific time. She had to come alone. She couldn't bring the rest of the Osbert family. And while he was present and visible, she must not touch him. These were the conditions. Not unreasonable. Amelia eagerly agreed. She would see her friend at last. Malakin, who was rattling around with an abacus at this point, he was still reluctant. He said, you should not have asked. It won't be at all as you think. Oh, is it like on the internet when old men try to entrap young girls? (laughs) Had he made his profile picture that of a youngster, but really he was a bad old man. Just rattling with an abacus. Amelia waited in excitement. Little footsteps came tapping across the room towards her. Tap, 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 tap. Then stopped. And then there he was. A very small boy, dressed in an unkempt white tunic, picking bits of straw from his hair. It was not to be a happy encounter. No, she found the straw to be terrifying. (laughs) Malikin began to cry, then seemed to be struggling against unseen hands which snatched at him. Mm. Amelia leapt to help, but the boy screamed, Don't touch me! He then seemed to be lifted away and disappeared once more. Somebody wasn't happy about the fact that he'd made himself visible. I don't think so. After that day, the Osbert family never heard from the spirit again. Oh. They called for him. They left out food in his favourite places. They searched the house for any sign. But it was no good. Malakin was gone. Punished. Poor little Malakin. It's quite sad in the end. Quite a sad story, isn't it? Murdy suggests that there are other examples of child-sized poltergeist or apparitions that might be seen once but never seen again. Right. Not like these ghosts which you just see in the same place over and over and over. He cites some other modern examples based on cases investigated by the Society for Psychical Research. And one of these is Hanneth Hall in the 1950s. Okay. Let's look at Hanneth Hall because it's local. Okay. Well, not local immediately, but East Anglian local just between Peterborough and King's Lynn. Okay. And Murdy delights in pointing out it's a classic ghost story beginning when we hear about the Hanneth Hall case. One dark night in 1957, a newspaper reporter from Peterborough curses his luck as his car breaks down Mm -hmm. in the middle of the Cambridgeshire Fens. Luckily for him, he isn't too far from Hanneth Hall, which is an old Elizabethan farmhouse near Wisbeach in somewhere called Tidgoat. (laughs) I imagine you don't say it, Tidgoat. Oh, you never do, do you? Yeah, maybe. And as an aside, um, I did a quick Google of Hanneth Hall and it was up for sale in the last few years or so. Oh, yeah. And there's like a very fancy property listing for it, which has got loads of photographs of the interior and exterior of Hanneth Hall. Do any of them feature a haunting presence? I didn't see one. You could scour, couldn't you? Yeah, you could pretend to be interested in buying the house, but really you could turn up with your most haunted gear, couldn't you, and try and uh, conduct a ghostly investigation. Use your special headphones. Exactly. Take your thermometer to see if there's a um, a cold snap somewhere in the house. A sudden drop in temperature. Exactly. Anyway, the reporter was given shelter by a couple who lived in the old farmhouse with their two young children. That was Mr and Mrs Page. And Mr Derek Page later went on to become the Labour MP for Kings Lynn. Oh. So somewhat of a distinguished fellow, you might say. Mm-hmm. Kind of fellow you could trust in the telling of a tale. <laughs> Maybe. Mr and Mrs Page told the reporter about some strange goings-on at the farmhouse. Odd rappings, groaning sounds, footsteps in empty rooms, and most alarmingly, objects flying through the air. Right. 
Sounds like classic poltergeist. It does, doesn't it? The reporter listened with interest and went on to report the case to the Society for Psychical Research, who duly began an investigation. And this was carried out by members including Tony Cornell. Tony. Who was one of the region's most active ghost hunters. And Alan Gould. And the pair later wrote about this case in their book Poltergeists, published in 1979. Their investigation lasted a number of years, and on their many visits to the property, they apparently witnessed many of the same phenomenon as the pages had reported. Strange noises, a chair being hurled in front of them by an unknown tosser. Most dramatically, <laughs> someone tossed the chair. I understand what you mean. An unknown tosser threw the chair in front of them. Most dramatically, on one occasion, they found themselves trapped when a brass toasting fork flew across the room and embedded itself in the lock of the door. Ooh. That was close. And then they couldn't get out. Right. Because the toasting fork was jammed in the lock. Better in the door than in them, though. I suppose, but maybe it meant to trap them. The Page family claimed to have never seen this fork before, and its origins remain a mystery. Oh, so the fork was manifested before it was tossed. Possibly, yes. Cornell and Gould also made attempts to communicate with the spirit, of course. Mm. Of course you would. Yeah, yeah. That's Psychical Investigation 101. Yeah, sure. Get the Um, Ouija board out. They claimed to have contacted an entity who communicated through raps. That she was a woman who'd been murdered in the house. (laughs) Not like Snoop Dogg. No, not that kind of rap. She was a woman who had been murdered in the house in 1906. They were unable to confirm this story, though, through historical records. So who knows? Another suggestion was that a man called Joseph Hanneth, who had previously lived in the house in the early 1800s, could have something to do with the mysterious sounds, groanings, rappings, flingings. When Joseph Hanneth's wife had died, a grief-stricken Joseph refused to believe it and became deranged, keeping his wife's body in an upstairs bedroom for two months and insisting that their maid provided regular meals to be delivered to her. Yeah. Then what did he do? Force the meals in? I guess... Or, like, smear them about the plate like a child who doesn't really want to eat it. Well, the maid had to take the meals in to the corpse. And, unfortunately, it seems the maid was driven to suicide by having to go (laughs) up to to tend on the dead body for two months. Exactly. The poor maid was driven to suicide. So then the question arises, did the unfortunate wife haunt Hannah Hall? Was it the maid? Or was it the maid who'd been driven to kill herself through this terrifying ordeal? Probably more likely the maid. The wife just sounds like a normal death. The maid has been... But she was forced to stay in the house. It doesn't seem like it was either of these spirits who eventually manifested as a visible apparition in the house. No. In fact, in 1959, Mrs Page saw a small fair-haired boy who appeared to her in the living room. Just once, and then never again. A tiny child! The strange phenomena ebbed away at Hanneth Hall after the appearance of the small boy. And caught... So is that the same with Malikin then? Yes. Once Malikin had been grabbed away, never again did he... Never again seen. Well, or not at least by the Osberts. There are no more reports for many years. After the phenomenon at Hanneth Hall ebbed away, Cornell and Gould compiled their reports. They were convinced that this was genuine poltergeist activity. Right. They thought it was a a true case. What do you think? Well, hard to know really, isn't it? Without casting aspersions upon the rigour of their experiments, but they seem like trustworthy fellows. (laughs) According to Alan Murdy, their work on the Hannah Hall case also persuaded many previously sceptical members mm. of the SPR that right. poltergeists perhaps could be in some cases. Because this is quite real. late era SPR, right? This is this 70s. is fifties. Oh, okay. And they published the book in the seventies. Yeah, the SPR publish regular journals as well, yeah. so they wrote the case up. So you're saying it's after a fashion peer reviewed, and therefore <laughs> definite science. Who really knows? Who really knows? Back 
to Dagworth Hall for a final footnote. Yeah. Alan Murdy says he's been contacted more recently by somebody that lived at Dagworth Hall, even as, as late as the late 20th century. Right. It's not the same building as when the Osbets lived there, but it is on exactly the same spot. Yeah. And in the 1960s, apparently, a school inspector lived in the oldest part of the building. He moved out quickly and abruptly, and this was apparently due to the action of a poltergeist behaving in the traditional manner. Great. The traditional manner. Hurling stuff, groaning. Hurling, groaning, maybe speaking in the voice of a tiny boy. <laughs> so Murdy says that this is an example of, on the exact same spot but many centuries apart, a similar poltergeist activity. Psychic resonance. Well, perhaps, or did little Malakin come back after all these years? Why would he have gone away? Well, so the person who reported it to Alan Murdy about this school inspector theorised, could it be something to do with children or sort of somebody that had a like an affinity with working with children? So that the first family, the Osberts, obviously five children. They were children. Busy, running around playing. Mm. And a school inspector... Maybe he had, had some, some sense of that within him. Some childish sense. I think if you're a school inspector, you'd hate children. But anyway, it's um, possibly Dagworth Hall, Tiny Malakin returned. How many years after? Maybe it's on a, uh, a cycle. Oh, well, some 800 years later. Mm, so in 800 years' time. <laughs> <laughs> we check if Little Malakin has returned. There may have been other references throughout history, we just don't know. That's true. Ralph was very carefully chronicling, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. But maybe people weren't chronicling in between. That's the tale of Little Malakin. Great. And possibly a second child poltergeist at Hanneth Hall. A rogue toasting fork. That was my favourite part of the tale. We'll try and be better in 2023. Do more episodes. Let's see what happens. And I suppose that's the end. Come and find us next time and we'll have more stories. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.